Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Fair shake of a sauce bottle, mate. G'day, Mark Kenny here with Democracy Sausage, which comes to you each week from Australian National University. I'm uh, from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations. And I'm talking this week with Sam Rogovine, whose book, The Echidna Strategy, is about to be released. In fact, today, as we record this, its subtitle is Australia's Search for Power and Peace. Uh, Sam Rogovine is director of the Lowy Institute's International Security Program. He's a former analyst with the Office of National Assessments, uh, an expert commentator in this area, and does a lot of writing and thinking uh, about Australia's foreign and strategic stance. Uh, so, Sam, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Really terrific to have you here, and congratulations on this new book. Many thanks, Mark, and thanks for having me. Long time listener. Oh, that's terrific! It's uh, when I say congratulations on this book. It's a it's a bold book. It's one that swims against the tide. In fact, I was thinking about this because of your name, the Echidna Strategy. Recently, Jason Clare, the Education Minister, had a a review done of the education sector, and one of the things he instructed the reviewers to do was to come up with some spiky ideas. Uh, you come up with a spiky title, yeah. um, but it's also full of spiky ideas and it hinges off a kind of a spiky defence doctrine in relation to to Taiwan. So perhaps you could just talk to that for a moment. Yeah, the metaphor is, is slightly designed to allude to uh, what is often referred to in the context of Taiwan's defence policy, uh, the porcupine strategy. Mm. Uh, so and- you've Australianised it. I've Australianized it, but similarly in the past, you know, the the the, the great founding leader of uh, of Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew, referred to Singapore as needing to be like the poison shrimp, which is to say, small but too too costly for any larger power to swallow, and that's really the idea here. Um, you mentioned Jason Clare, but actually, I think uh, the Defence Minister Richard Miles has also referred to a, a porcupine strategy himself. Mm-hmm. But I, I I actually thought at the time he mangled the metaphor slightly because he. He mentioned that in the context of Australia having a lot of long-range strike capabilities. But, of course, that's not what echidnas do, right? The the echidnas' (laughs) defence strategy is basically to to sit there and and they they do wait for an attacker to come along. But when the attacker comes along, it's very painful for that attacker. And and that, I think, is basically the metaphor that I'm reaching for. Uh, Australia doesn't need to go out in search of enemies. In fact, if you want to encapsulate the the theme of the book, the argument of the book in, in just a couple of lines, it would be this. When it comes to China and our defence against a rising China, our single biggest defence asset is distance. 
You know, Beijing is closer to Berlin than it is to Sydney. We are a long way away from China. And at the moment, we're pursuing a defence policy that actually seeks to compress the distance between us and China. When and you, what we should when, be doing is exploiting it. So that's kind of a, a new doctrine, the security of distance as distinct from the tyranny of distance, yeah. the security of distance. And is that based on conceiving of Australia as the, you know, the capital in Canberra and the major population centres around the east coast and the southern coast? Or is it... I mean, is is what you're just saying? Does that apply to Darwin as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's you know, D- Darwin to China's uh, South Sea Fleet headquarters is still around four thousand kilometres. Right. I mean, it's it's a long, long way. And and one of the things I illustrate in the book is that you know, in the unlikely event that China should ever want to project military force against Australia it would be a very difficult thing to do. So there's a very simple illustration of this that I use in the book. For a military commander, if their job is to hit a target and they've got, let's say, 500 kilograms of explosive to destroy a target with, if that target's over the next hill, then maybe you'll use a truck in the dead of night and you'll, you know, you you detonate it from a distance. If that target's 5,000 metres away, you need artillery. If it's 500 kilometres away, you need a very expensive combat aircraft with an airfield and all those support crews and everything that goes along with it. If it's 5,000 kilometres away, you need an intercontinental ballistic missile. Now, at every step along that continuum, the costs go up exponentially, and yet the military effect that you're achieving remains constant. Mm. It's still 500 kilograms of high explosive, right? So the, the the lesson from there from that is that any time you want to project military force, you, there, there is no substitute for getting close. If you're far away, it is incredibly costly and difficult to hurt someone. And as I say, I think Australia should be exploiting that distance. And at the moment, we're pursuing a defence strategy that effectively tries to compress it by bringing our military capabilities closer to China. And that that really is what at the heart of AUKUS. Right, so it's about we 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 perceive the threat. We project our strategic forces into that theatre or closer to that theatre. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is that, in a sense, that's playing into uh, playing into the sort of uh, uh, security risk problem rather than actually maximising or optimising the advantage we already yeah. have. So, so the answer is yes, and there's two reasons for that. One is the kind of operational issue, which I've talked about so far, which is that it's simply much more difficult to operate at vast distance than it is close to your own shores. But I think actually the the other part of this and the part that I spend you know quite a bit of time on in the book is the, is the political problem. Uh, and that is that we, we would only ever operate like in the way you're you're suggesting, close to China's shores, you know, hemming the Chinese Navy in along its coastline, which is what these new nuclear-powered submarines are are really good at doing. We would only do that together with the United States. You know, in isolation, if we if we had to do it alone, it would make absolutely no sense mm. for us to be operating out there. So not not only on an operational level are, are we pursuing, I think, a, a counterproductive strategy, but politically we're tying ourselves in very closely to American foreign policy and military objectives. And, and I don't think that's in our interest either. Yes. Now, I want to come back to some of those things, but uh, just in term, in broader terms, I mean, you are, as I said, swimming against the tide here of a, of a kind of a consensus, which you note either in your essay that I, I read in the Australian Foreign Affairs magazine or in mm. the book that uh, this consensus around AUKUS, it's it sort of almost sort of precipitated overnight. I mean, we were, we were you describe it as uh, if you advocated nuclear submarine capability just a little bit more than a couple of years ago, you were essentially on the fringe of the debate. Then suddenly it just became the consensus. Yeah. 
How did that happen? Well, look, there's a there's a charitable interpretation of how that happened, and there's a slightly less charitable one. And I think the, the bits of both of them are true. Here's the charitable version. Basically, it is that uh, nuclear powered submarines were considered to be off the table. So, if you were an Australian defence commentator, or a you know you, you were a specialist or an academic on this issue, even if you, in theory, were in favour of Australia getting nuclear powered, so you might have privately held that view, yeah, but it there just was no didn't point seem talking feasible. about it. Yeah. Because it just wasn't feasible. And yeah. then, of course, the Morrison government asked and discovered that actually, yeah, it is feasible. We will sell you these things. Now, that gets you part of the way to an answer about how yeah. this consensus developed overnight. I think the other part of it is the, the less charitable version is to say that, well, uh, generally people are very quick to gather in behind the new status, whatever the status quo is. And essentially overnight, the government announced the new status quo. First, we're not getting nuclear-powered submarines, then we are. And people tend to generally align behind the new status quo. Um, so yeah, that, that is a, a natural human tendency. But you know, the, the, the irony here is that, you know, as you described, previously those advocating for nuclear submarines were the fringe dwellers. And now I feel like I'm a little bit on the mm. fringe. Overnight, the status quo suddenly shifted. So, of course... Of course, we're in favour of nuclear-powered submarines. Is it also because there's a um, a tendency, a proclivity within uh, anyone who's uh, within the defence community uh, as a sort of a natural feature of it that they will always individuals will always look for stronger, tougher, bigger things, bigger machinery, bigger new, newer technology, greater capability. Um, when it's not feasible, that might not come up, but as soon as it is, that consensus has a sort of a default position to say yes to it. Uh, a bit like, you know, a defamation lawyer is always going to say, yeah, don't print that. That mm -hmm. yeah, could take you to court. Well, I mean, and this goes to, it goes in, in a sense right to the heart of your argument because as you've just been saying, it doesn't necessarily work that way. Yes, the, the capability might be increased, but it brings added risks with it. Right. Look, uh, certainly over the years observing the defence commentariat, I have... I have noted in in some quarters there's a certain uh, fascination simply with the technology with and kit. the weaponry mm. with kit, mm. yeah. And I know this because I recognise it in myself. I mean, yeah. I, I wanted to be a fighter pilot when I was a kid. And, yes, I read You know, that. my interest developed over the years into strategic studies, so I recognise it and I have a certain fascination with it as well, hopefully leavened by, you know, an, understand, well, an understanding we should all have now as we're observing the Ukraine war of how – of what an utter tragedy mm. war is yeah. and how we, hard we should be working to prevent it at all costs. So, yes, I do recognise um, that that tendency, uh, but I, I don't think I'd put too much weight on it. I think there's enough sort of sobriety among defence decision makers uh, that they don't, uh, you know, that, that they don't get carried away by that kind of, by the romance, if you like, of, of weaponry. I would, though, put... I think a related point here put put a little bit more weight on uh, what the services want, and if you put certain services in charge of decision making, or, or you know elevate their interests yeah. above the others, then they are in turn going to elevate their own interests. Yeah, because there's always sort of internal competition within the defence forces right. between the different services, so they're looking for that kind of uh, upper hand, looking for a better deal out of the whole thing relative to their competitors. Indeed. Yeah. Um, one of the things you also studied, uh, I read, was political philosophy. Mm. 
I wonder what your assessment is of how Labor so quickly moved to the position, you know, to, to, to form a critical part, arguably the critical part of this new consensus. Yeah. Well, I, I heard the podcast that you did a couple of weeks ago with Frank Bongiorno and others, and I, and I thought, I, I haven't yet come up with a better answer to the one that, that was offered in that podcast, which was essentially that when, uh, you know, Labor was given less than a day to really make up its mind about this, and then since it's come to office, uh, it has, I think, you know, doubled down on the AUKUS deal and reinforced it with new measures. Um and and the explanation that I heard there in that podcast, I thought was a solid one, which is that at the moment, there really isn't that much politically to be gained from not continuing along this line, which isn't to say that there are sort of, uh, you know, deep seated divisions within the cabinet on this issue. I'm not aware of any evidence that uh, to that effect. Um, but at the same time, you would have to calculate Politically, and I think the Prime Minister does make this calculation, if you want to be a two- or three-term government and you think that and you know that the major spending on this initiative is not going to come about probably until your second or third term, then where is the upside in really in, in hitting the brakes on AUKUS right now? Politically, it seems to me you're just handing the opposition an issue. Mm. Uh, without too much gain, potentially some gain internally, because it's clear that, as we saw from the national conference, that there is some disquiet uh, in in ALP branches about this. But I, I just I think that the naked political calculation at the moment is well, there's there's not an awful lot to be gained by hitting the brakes on this right now. Yeah, and as you say, Labor made a pretty rapid fire decision on supporting it from opposition. Yeah. So there's a tendency to stick with that, to double down on that as having been based on a sound strategic assessment, albeit reached in a very short space of time and without a huge amount of consultation with the broader party. Right. And I do think the the, the speed of that decision in itself undermines the kind of arguments we've heard from Pat Conroy, for instance, about how this is AUKUS's progressive policy, for instance. And the, the, the intimation- there were, some, there were some pretty risible arguments put forward, and I thought that was one of them. The, the, I think the, the other mention of uh, appeasement in there as well was- yeah. Uh, a bit, bit, bit strong. Yeah, there's a reaching back into Labor history to convey the sense that this is all very deeply consistent with Labor values. But the fact that, first of all, you know, n nobody that I'm aware of uh, of any seniority in the Labor Party ever spoke in favour of nuclear submarines before AUKUS was announced. Mm. Combine that with how quickly the decision was made to actually uh, go along with AUKUS, and you have to. You have to question about exactly how deeply, uh, how deeply seated this belief is. Yeah. Um, the other thing, of course, is that Labor, and I think we covered this in that previous podcast, but Labor generally regards itself as a more vulnerable one, uh, and there are a lot of polls bear this out, and certainly the sort of consensus in the commentary it reinforces it, perhaps even reinforces it beyond its truth. But nonetheless, um, that 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 Labor has. You know more to prove on economic management and more to prove on national security than the coalition does. It start that is Labor starts from a, a more suspicious position in the voters' mind and therefore has to go further. And this is one of those, or at least you know, talk strongly and reinforce its position. And uh, as you say, Anthony Albanese made a, he made it uh, very openly in the in the national conference that he sees the the process of establishing a long term government 
uh, as you say, two or three terms uh, in order to, uh, you know, really do things and then embed them in in, a, in Australian society. Uh, and uh, being strong on national security is a critical thing there. So not wanting to in any way equivocate, not to be seen to be equivocating, it's it's all part of that uh, that overall approach. Yeah, and especially when you consider that the, uh, I mean, financially, this AUKUS hasn't really taken off yet. You know, it, it, mm. it's going to take several more years for the real uh, costs to start accumulating. So at this point, there's really no no budget pressure on the government to uh, uh, to pull back either. And that's one of the worrying things about it for me is that there, there's this kind of mismatch between um, you know the, the realities of the of, of AUKUS coming about and the political cycle. Politicians love to announce things, love to announce you know things that have. Uh, benefits attached to them and there are many benefits attached in a sort of an economic sense, uh, jobs, union jobs as it was said at national conference over and over, you know, regional economies uh, bolstered by by the, the various elements of this. So you can see the upside for a government in announcing this. The devil is always in the detail of course and the delivery and there are many ways in which this can uh, that can lead to disappointment down the track. But at the moment there is no such downside associated with where the government is. So I suppose it goes to your original point. Yeah, and I, I must say, uh, and, and this is not a partisan point at all, but b- both sides of politics are guilty of uh, of pushing the, the, the line of you know, defence policy as a job creator. Yeah. Oh, it's been um, huge. I mean, I've come from Adelaide, right? It was, And Adelaide has just been sort of central to this argument for so long. Yeah. But I mean, I think that there's possibly slightly more to be said for the related argument that we ought to have some onshore defence capabilities simply to improve our resilience against, you know, uh, foreign uh, interference or, or, or foreign coercion, so that we we know we have enough capabilities and we're not in the situation, for instance, you know, in the worst case that the Ukrainians are now, where they have to suddenly import vast amounts of weaponry that we can sustain ourselves if necessary. I think that has some merits on the margins, but the the economic arguments I think are are pretty weak. I mean, we're 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 in a sub four percent unemployment economy. Uh, we're one of the strongest performing economies in the OECD over the last thirty years. The idea that we need a massive government funded uh, defence project in order to boost jobs in this country. I don't think passes, uh, you know, a simple economic test. It's not like there are armies of uh, engineers and project managers sitting on the unemployment line, just waiting for the government to announce a new, uh, you know, huge defence contract. Those people already have jobs. Most of them are in the private sector. So really, what's being proposed here is that those people are, will now need to be attracted to. Uh, taxpayer-funded jobs and moved out of the private sector. I wouldn't have thought that's a uh, that that's a that's a smart economic strategy. Interesting, indeed. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. 
Standing Columns of Fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back, Sam Rogovine. Let's go to some of the details of AUKUS itself because some people might have forgotten key details of it. Um, uh, we're talking about, I mean, the, the headline-grabbing things were the, the what, it, what it was three to five Virginia-class submarines, second-hand submarines that we would be nuclear ones, which we would be uh, buying from the US. Uh, they would start to come online, assuming it happens. It's one of the unknowns, of course. Um, but uh, assuming it happens in the early 2030s. I think that's early to mid-2030s. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then there's the regular visits of a UK nuclear submarine to something called... Uh, Submarine Rotational Force West. Yes, yeah. right. So what, one UK nuclear-powered submarine and four American. And we, 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 we don't know a lot at the moment. We know that um, uh, new facilities are going to be built at HMAS Stirling in Western Australia so that those submarines can be supported, which is to say they can be resupplied, including with weapons, mm -hmm. I believe. Yeah. Um, and so that requires, you know, a, a, a different uh, standard of uh, of equipment and facilities at HMA Sterling, simply because these are nuclear powered vessels, and that just requires, you know, much more care and a higher uh, higher level of facilities. Yeah, right. And so, and that is supposed to start that that uh, rotational force west is supposed to start from. Later this decade, twenty twenty seven. Well, the phrase the phrase that I believe was used was as early as twenty twenty seven. So yeah. they've given themselves some wiggle room. Yeah, as early as yeah, and uh, there's also some other aspects to it. Uh, the expanded air force base at Tyndall, which is about what three hundred k south of Darwin. Yeah, well, no, no one's formally attached that to AUKUS as oh, okay. such, right. but I think I, I think we can say it's of a piece with Australia's broader approach to its uh, to its defence policy and to its uh, Alliance policy, right? So yeah, the the idea there is that um, the facilities at the airbase at RWF Tyndall, which is about three hundred kilometres south of Darwin, that that will be expanded so that you have more fuel, more accommodation, and and munitions stored at that airbase, so that it can support up to six American strategic bombers, either B fifty twos or B two stealth bombers, which are you know very long range aircraft. Right, and we can talk about what that means because you've got some some uh, interesting thoughts on that. Just before we do, I should also mention, of course, the other key thing about AUKUS is the provision of these new UK uh, designed or the, it's jointly designed and constructed UK, Australian, US, um, SNKs, is it? Uh, SSN, well, it's now known as SSN, SSN AUKUS. Yeah, SSN AUKUS. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Um, and they are supposed to come online probably in the 2040s, right? Mm. Um, but a complete clean sheet design uh in, in designed to get between Australia and the United Kingdom, I mean a hugely ambitious effort, and uh, you know, like many people, I was shocked that we seem to be choosing the most complicated possible path towards this yeah. capability. Not not only are we going to upgrade our own existing Collins class submarines, we're then going to buy secondhand American nuclear powered submarines, and then we're going to 
invest in a completely new design by a UK shipyard. So three which don't have a great projects. yeah, and those UK shipyards don't have a stellar record, do they? Mixed, mixed. <laughs> mm. Very politely put. Let's go back to that that uh, those six B fifty twos and and stealth bombers and so forth. You make a really interesting point, a chilling point in a way, uh, in the uh, in the essay about how that would be seen and and the capability that it gives. Now, you say it, they, those planes would not be, it's not thought that they would be nuclear armed, that is, they wouldn't be carrying nuclear weapons, but they have a nuclear dimension. And and you then go on to say mm. it's a very, I can't remember the exact words, but it's, you know, it's, an, it's a very sort of important thing to, to challenge another country's nuclear arsenal. Yeah. So can you speak to that? Yeah, look, I, I mean, the first thing to say is that even without, even if we discount the idea that these bombers could be used to target China's nuclear facilities, it is still a, a significant elevation of, America, of Australia's status mm. in America's war planning for a, a future contingency against China. Uh, but the fact that the, the mere possibility that these bombers could be used, and, and you're quite right to say they wouldn't be nuclear armed themselves, but you can use conventional weapons to target another country's nuclear facilities. Yeah, that's which a is critical say, point, isn't it? Yeah. Which is to say you target its missile silos, you target its the naval facilities that support its, uh, uh, its nuclear submarines. Um, you destroy the uh, the command and control facilities that control uh, that are in charge of China's nuclear force. So you can do all of that with conventional weapons. And you might and you might do it. I mean, I'm not saying we would or that the US would, but you might do it preemptively. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah, I mean, I think look, it's it's impossible to know the course of any such conflict. But we, if we have to consider, you know, the worst possible case, you you would think both sides in the event, say, of a Taiwan contingency would have an interest in containing such a conflict to the conventional domain. But of course, you know, escalation can happen. Um, and on any given day, even if the war is being contained to purely conventional measures, China doesn't know uh, when these B-52s are approaching and they're about to fire their missiles, China doesn't know what's being targeted. Mm. Uh, China doesn't know that these bombers are tasked with hitting China's conventional forces or China's nuclear forces. So that in itself, I think, creates an incentive for China to hit first. And that's why, as I argue in the essay, uh, I think RWF Tyndall will be a target. Yeah. And then there'd also be, as part of uh, the overall, and this is part of formerly part of AUKUS, there'd also be an East Coast submarine base as well, wouldn't there? Right. Yes. So this is a facility that the Morrison government announced and which hasn't been talked about much since. I think it's... Uh, it's not particularly urgent, so there, and there's a great deal of political sensitivity to it. It'll probably be in Port Kembla. That's what most you know pundits are uh, predicting. It's the most suitable facility, but you know there's a lot of um, uh, political, uh, you know, local political dramas to go through before they get the approval to build a facility like that. I mean, you, I lived in Wollongong. I can just imagine. Yeah, the, uh, so that's right. It's south of Sydney mm. uh, and sort of on the coast up north from Canberra. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you can just imagine in, in any city of that size what uh, the kind of local opposition you would encounter to uh, stationing uh, nuclear submarines there. And once it's built, if it is ever built, then it will be the, the, the east coast home of Australia's nuclear submarine fleet, but it will also be suited for visits by American and British submarines. And 
for the same reason that Tyndall might be, it could also become a target. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. it would be a target. Um, and what's the what's the balance between the US in, in nuclear arsenal, warheads, for example, um, between the US and China at the moment? Oh, it's it's highly imbalanced towards the United States. So the the US nuclear arsenal is very much uh, weighted against the Russian threat, and those so those two countries have roughly equal uh, nuclear arsenals of, of active nuclear weapons. Uh, but China is now growing rapidly. So China, th- there is evidence now that China is building huge new intercontinental ballistic missile facilities to look I forget the number but it's a it's a very substantial expansion of its of its nuclear capabilities that is now in the offing well I think I, I saw somewhere that you maybe from you that um, it was uh, around 400 warheads that the the China has compared to the US was 1700 is that about right yeah, that sounds roughly right, but I no. think China is is at least doubling that figure. And I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have the numbers. No, on no, it. that's fine. It's, I mean, it's it's the, the the broad point anyway is that um, there's there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of development, things are changing at the moment. We're becoming involved in that change, and I think you uh, you, you had a, a very good point you made. I, I like the language of it. You said that what's really changed in U.S. strategic defense terms is not force structure, but force posture, and we're part of that now. Yes. So the the point I was trying to make there actually is that uh, I think the the perception is growing that the United States is taking a lot of action to counter China's rise as a military power. Uh, and that perception arises largely from American political rhetoric. I mean, ever since the Trump administration in particular, there's this sense that China is now the enemy number one for the United States. And, and all of its politicians say that, and it's one of the few issues that Democrats and Republicans can agree on. Uh, it's also true, of course, that the Biden administration has instituted the, the CHIPS Act and other things that uh, are, are clearly uh, aimed at China. But one thing it has not done it has not actually very much increased the amount of military power it has in this region, in Asia. Uh, And you would think after a 30-year Chinese expansion, the biggest, the most dramatic that we've seen uh, in uh, in the world since World War II, that America should have taken some dramatic action of its own by now if they were true to that rhetoric about China being enemy number one. But really what's happening is not so much that the size of the force has increased, but it's just being dispersed. And mm. yes, as you say, Australia is part of that. Mm. Uh, we've also heard recent news of um, agreements with the Philippines. Papua New Guinea was a recent one, although that's that's a fairly modest proportions. Guam is being expanded. All of these things, I would argue, are designed to disperse America's forces around the region because China's missile threat is now so acute. And uh, that gives it resilience, but just by by uh, um, diversification, in a sense, it gives it gives the United States more resilience, but it. I think Australia would be foolish to think that it represents a reinforcement of uh, American military military power in this region. In fact, I think what it should do is ask us is force us to ask ourselves, well, how invested is the United States really in this? Does the United States really want to take on China? And are we backing the winning team here? And, I, and I'm not for a moment suggesting that you know we back China instead. In fact, the book is all about how Australia can protect itself and defend itself independently, much more independently than we do now. Uh, but I do fear that you know we're, we're, we're backing a team that, you know in, in both scenarios, I think it it looks... Uh, it looks unfavourable for Australia. Either the United States is really committed to containing China, in which case 
you know, were at risk of becoming engaged in uh, in a war alongside the United States with China, which I think would be terrible news for us. Or the other case is that the United States is not actually that committed. Yeah, so that's a pretty chilling uh, idea in itself, or at least it ought to be chilling on the sort of some of the rhetoric in this debate. And yet, it, it doesn't really. I mean, there's an assumption here that uh, what's happening is that Australia and the US and uh, other uh, democracies in the region are keen on containing China. Mm. That the US is projecting further power here, but but uh, you're saying that it can't be guaranteed longer term. Well, certainly the the, 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 the the numbers don't actually point to that. No, yeah. not at all. I mean, uh, the, the, the military balance now, for instance, on Taiwan, the, the military balance now I think is so uh, heavily weighted towards China that the United States could not win a conflict like that at an acceptable cost. I mean, the United States still has the most powerful military in the world mm -hmm. by a decent margin, but China's catching up so fast that you would have to question whether, you know, the, the, the kind of losses that the United States would suffer in a conflict like that, you would have to wonder whether the Americans would ask themselves, well, is this worth it? And, and I think we have reached that point, in fact. Peter Dutton said at one point, I think while they were still in government, that it would be inconceivable for Australia not to be involved, words to that effect. Mm. Uh, do you think that's the case? And do you think that AUKUS makes it more difficult for Australia not to be involved? Well, I think it will, yes. I mean, you, you cannot build a military capability, that is to say the submarines, specifically designed, I would argue, around you know fighting a war in North Asia, as mm -hmm. I said earlier, hemming the Chinese Navy in along its coastline. Uh, and potentially firing missiles onto the Chinese mainland, you cannot build, spend decades building a capability like that in, in the most intimate of embraces with the United States, both technologically, militarily, in terms of military doctrine even. You can't do that. And then on the day that the balloon goes up, suddenly say, sorry, we're not having any part in it. Hmm. I mean, of course, in theory, you can. Uh, and I, I hear people say from time to time, no, we can always say no to the Americans. Of course, theoretically, that's true, but you're making it so much harder mm. for yourself to do that. And I think one of the problems in our national debate about Taiwan at the moment is how seamlessly Taiwan security has come to be conflated with our own. Yes, it is interesting, isn't it? So, the, the, Especially the, when you consider the rhetoric that's been emanating from Beijing from um, – you know, from the president and and downwards, it's 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 pretty bellicose uh, the language. I mean, it's pretty direct. We, it, when, when that invasion happens, I don't know what you're feeling about the timetable of that is, mm. um, but assuming it does happen, then um, you know people will be able to say, well, we were told it was going to happen. We were told it was going to happen quite soon. Yeah, I mean, I, look, if you're asking me for a prediction, I, I won't offer one. I, I don't think um, experts on this – experts are very useful, but they're not very good at making uh, accurate predictions. That's been uh, well proven. So I, I don't I don't buy into, uh, you know, a lot of the discussions I hear that, that China has a specific date on uh, when it proposes to, to, to retake Taiwan, and I, I don't think it helps very much to speculate on it. Um, but – yeah, I do think there is a place for Australia to really question, well, you know, I mean, speaking for myself, I would very much prefer that Taiwan remains as it is now, um, uh, maintains the level of independence that it has now, and that it, its democracy can thrive. I mean, the, 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 of course, the yeah. democracy on Taiwan is a, 
if nothing else, is a great affront to the Chinese Communist Party because it signals to the world that, no, no, China, you're wrong about this. Your people can have democracy and can thrive under yeah. a democratic system. But if you ask me, is that a vital security interest for Australia? then my answer is actually no. I, I don't think it is a vital security interest, not enough to send Australian forces to Taiwan to defend its its democracy. Uh, it's, it's a long way away, and I think Australia can survive and thrive in a world which, you know, much as we wouldn't want it, uh, where China dominated Taiwan. Now, we talked before about, you know, the, the sort of uh, the political calculus inside labor about some of these things if we think back to the the, the so-called pacific pivot that obama uh, initiated mm. he came here i think it's 2012 is that correct 11 i think 2011 um and uh, talked about that so that was uh, happening between a democratic administration in the us and a labor labor government here and in some ways th these things we've been talking about are escalations on there they're quite different yeah. but they're nonetheless um uh you know f moving further in that in that sort of direction which brings me to the question uh, and I suppose you've made some reference to this already, but about the US's bona fides in terms of its longer-term uh, in involvement in the region and the important question of what, what you think, whether you think it matters whether Trump gets a second term, which is still a possibility, uh, amazingly, mm. uh, or indeed there's a there's you know there's someone else in the Republican Party or, or, yeah. or Biden gets a second term. Um I think it does matter, but maybe not as much as most people think it matters. Um, so the the yes, the it, it, it's important that you raise the Obama pivot from 2011 because I think it does reinforce the point that uh, you know we we do have reason to question whether the United States is really committed to. Uh, constraining China's ambitions because really nothing happened. Yeah, it didn't nothing really, it didn't materialize, did it? Yeah. Um, so that is an important point. It actually illustrates the point that th this is effectively uh, the bipartisan status quo. It didn't really matter who was in office. We've had Republicans and Democrats in office since the end of the Cold War, all saying the same things about the how important it is for America to be the leading power in Asia. And you know more recently how important it is to uh, to resist China's rise to leadership, and yet the basic status quo, particularly in military terms, has persisted. You know, American force structure really hasn't changed very much since the end of the Cold War in Asia. Yeah. So whether Trump gets in or not, I, I think it does matter, but because he can accelerate the kind of trends I'm talking about, but. I think there are there are wider issues at play here that go beyond Trump and that will that will be sustained uh, well beyond Trump. And I think at the heart of it is is a basic proposition: how important is Asia for America's security? Mm. So the Americans have been able to avoid this question for a long time because being in Asia, being the leading military power in Asia, hasn't cost very much. But all of a sudden, it's becoming much more costly and much more risky because you are taking on the second biggest power in the world, which is China. Hmm. So at long last, America will be faced, will be, will be forced to confront this question, how important is our leadership in Asia really to America's security? And I think when they're truly forced to confront that question, the obvious answer to me is actually it's not that important. America is an incredibly secure country. And it will remain secure, even in the unlikely event that China completely dominates Asia. I don't think that's going to happen. And but the, even if it did, America would be still be an incredibly secure place. Yeah, and this goes to your point earlier about 
the, the choices that we make. I mean, if you look at it from Australia's perspective, it's quite a diabolical equation. You've got a, an increasingly bellicose and expansive China, a bit more aggressive in its rhetoric and its defence build-up and so forth, its capability build-up, and you've got an increasingly isolationist America which, as you say, whether it's Trump or someone from, from another Republican, I mean, the Republican Party has become more inward-looking and therefore less inclined to be projecting mm. power here anyway, um, that you would think, in, in you know, all other things being equal, ought to be encouraging Australia to think about its own resilience, its own yeah. sort of uh, uh, the extent, its self-sufficiency to a degree, improving that. Yeah, and, and yet the opposite has happened. Mm. We, we've taken the approach of tying ourselves even more closely to the United States. Yeah. yeah. And what just, just quickly, uh, one uh, final thing, the Tomahawk missiles that we just bought, which, again, not part of AUKUS, uh, but uh, another big defence acquisition, mm. does that change anything? Well, I mean, for the moment, what we're proposing to do is put Tomahawk cruise missiles on surface ships, uh, the, the, the three air warfare destroyers that we... Uh, that we built uh, some years ago now. Very advanced vessels but uh, and very capable vessels, except that we are living in an era right now of unprecedented vulnerability for all kinds of major surface ships. So we continue to build them. And in fact, every Navy in the world continues to build them, whereas the, the evidence right before our eyes, in fact, we saw it again in Ukraine when the Ukrainians sunk the, uh, the Russian cruiser Moskva, mm. Uh, but the evidence for, for decades now has been that it is incredibly difficult for even the most expensive and well-equipped surface ships to stop uh, advanced cruise missiles and advanced anti-ship missiles, which are incredibly cheap. So we're, we're, we're putting in a, a very advanced missile capability on a vulnerable platform. It might be of some use in sort of marginal contingencies where we're you know, a allied to the United States. Um, much in the same way that the United Kingdom sometimes supplements American forces and 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 strikes uh, uses cruise missiles for uh, strikes against um, uh, against uh, land targets, but in a China scenario, it's just not relevant anymore because surface ships are so incredibly vulnerable that they they will just not be in the fight. Which goes to the point about submarines, really, isn't it? That they are uh, supposedly undetectable. Yeah, certainly submarines are a, are a better answer to Australia's uh, defence needs than mm. large surface vessels, that's and, for sure. And you would change that balance? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there is definitely a place for surface ships for Australia, but I think they're of much more modest size and capabilities and built m mostly for contingencies in our own Pacific Islands region. And really, one of the themes of the book is that we, we ought to be paying much more attention to the Pacific Islands region as part of an Australian sphere of influence, that's mainly a diplomatic task, not a uh, not a military task. But the military has a role there too. So that's a security in Asia rather than from Asia sort of uh, exactly. scenario. Yeah, right? and and you would presumably Indonesia is a key part of that. Yeah. So the, the as I said at the beginning, the the overarching theme of the book is of distance, of preserving distance. Mm -hmm. And one way to do that, I think, the primary way of doing that is through our statecraft. And at the core of that has to be one. The Pacific Islands region and to Indonesia, uh, we cannot afford to get Indonesia offside. And in fact, the the proposal of the book is that we we look for a much more intimate and much more ambitious strategic partnership with Indonesia, something akin to a uh, a security treaty, effectively, uh, an alliance. Although we'd never call it that because the Indonesians don't like that, but something akin to that, where as a core shared objective. 
uh, it would be that effectively to balance Chinese power in maritime Southeast Asia. So the China is never the dominant power. Doesn't it? But don't such agreements, whether you call them pacts or, or, or mm. treaties or whatever, doesn't it sort of run into the same problem, which is that there, there, there's mutual obligations. If they, were, if they have obligations to protect our interests, we have obligations to protect mm. theirs, which means that we are potentially drawn into going for, you know, projecting much further north mm -hmm. than you would otherwise advocate? Uh, well, certainly no, no further north than, than maritime Southeast Asia and, right. and uh, Indonesia's surrounds, yeah. So I think at the core of any alliance or any pact of the kind that you're describing has to be a shared objective and shared geography. And that's why Indonesia is such a great partner for Australia. Theoretically, I mean, in, in practice, we're a long way from that. And all mm. the Indonesia specialists who are listening to this podcast and who read my book will say, well, this is fanciful. We're so far away from that. The Indonesians are not nearly ready to involve themselves in a relationship like that. I think that's right. So we've got a lot of work to do. Right. But I do think that the two core uh, the, the two core ingredients for a close strategic partnership are there, shared geography and a shared objective. And, th and that objective is really very simple. It's not to be aggressive or expansionist. It's merely to keep maritime Southeast Asia free of foreign domination. Yeah. That's all. Right. And one of the things that that would achieve would be that it would keep at a distance, uh, presumably we were talking a moment ago about platforms from which missiles can be launched, launched right. ships, or submarines, what's China's capability in regard to uh, launching of potentially nuclear warheads from submarines? I understand it's not as far advanced as... Yeah, well, nuclear weapons are uh, another question again, but uh, it's a, you're asking the, ex the exact right question, and it is actually remarkable how seldom this question gets asked. So in the Australian debate, it's very common to hear that the danger is on our doorstep, or, you know, I think... Uh, during the last government, the Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce at one point said we were in danger of being, uh, you know, surrounded by Chinese military capabilities. We are so far from that world. I mean, China's, uh, I've been following China's rise as a military power for most of my career. So I'm not, you know, I, I'm intimately familiar with what they're capable with. But again, to go back to where we started, Projecting military force over long distances is incredibly difficult, and China doesn't have much capability to actually hit Australia. Uh, it already has more capability, mind you, than the Soviets ever had. So, of course, the danger is much more acute than it used to be. But still, um, you know, operating over very long ranges is very difficult. And so actually the, the, the core objective here, as I said, is one of statecraft, is to keep China at a distance through our statecraft. Mm. Sam Rogovine, it's been really great having you in the studio to talk about this. It's a, um, a courageous book, a really thought-provoking book and essay, uh, and this whole issue does need to have different voices in it. And I think you've made some, you know, fantastically persuasive points here. And I'm uh, really, uh, really glad to be able to talk to you on Democracy Sausage. Oh, thank you, Mark. I'm honoured, and, and thank you for the time. Pleasure. That's the podcast for this week. I uh, look forward to talking to you again next week. You can get onto us via our email at democracysausage at anu.edu.au uh, and you can give us feedback there. I'm sure some people will have views about this, as Sam Rogovin's just been saying. He knows he's uh, he's got plenty of people within the defence and security establishment who will take, uh, uh, take issue with uh, some of those points. You may be one of them. Uh, feel free to get in touch with us. Uh, we look forward to next week's show. Until then, bye for now.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.